It's time for the What in the Podcast. Modern UFO abduction and encounters uh, really began in the 60s with the abduction of Betty and Barney Hill, uh, who were abducted aboard an aircraft and came back to tell their story. But what about the ones that are abducted and never come back? Tonight we're going to talk about four abductions that led to disappearances where where the person was never recovered and one where the body was. Welcome to episode 88 of... What in the podcast? Begin audio transmission. Welcome to the What in the Podcast with your hosts, Kent Whittington and Adriana Mito. And Tracy Lynn Hernandez. Hello and welcome to the What in the Podcast. Hello, hello, hello. Hi. (laughs) (laughs) Hi. Hi. I heart you. I'm here. I heart you so much. Yeah, and you sound sad. (laughs) No, just quiet, which is weird for me, but yeah. That's all right. Got a good laugh right from the start there. Yep. So how is everybody doing tonight? It's been an interesting week. Uh-huh. But I had an amazing weekend. Yes, you actually <laughs> went to something very fun. Oh, yeah. I really wish we were gone. Tell us, tell us about so, it. So so Sacramento has a Sac Horror Film Fest. Uh-huh. And I Love Horror is local. And I Love Horror and the Sac Film Fest and everything else put together did a Lost Boys tribute. Where we had come out to play Dwayne the Vampire, you know, Death by Stereo, the one who only has like 24 whole lines in the entire movie, and got me in so much trouble for taking the movie on in the middle of the night with my sister Heather and I, because we sneak it on. That's right, and, you weren't allowed to watch it. And that. Dad's like, it's too scary, but it's not. Look, you glitter. Don't watch, yeah, anyway. <laughs> um, well, at least you didn't glare in the sunlight. True. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> no. um, but, but they talked about how they had to get coded in slime every time they make 15 days of filming the scenes in the cave. Uh-huh. And, 15, and and the, the above cave scene, and each day it was cold, gross slime. So, yeah. Anywho, <laughs> um, they had the guy who played Alan Frog. So, Jerome, I don't remember his last name at all, which is terrible of me. That's okay. And G. Tom Mack, the guy who wrote. And sang Cry Little Sister. Awesome. So um, did I, I thanks to all my people who, who pitched in for my early birthday fund. I love you all so much. I got to have my VIP ticket. I was the, the, the 10th person in line of the VIPs because I got there obscenely early, knowing full well that the line would be atrocious <laughs> and that VIPs would somehow get the short end of the stick because inevitably things run long. And inevitably, and when you go to those events there at the Colonial, the VAPs usually do get the short end of the stick. Oh, yeah. Just because the crowds are immense and yes. out of control. So um, as I'm in line, 
there's a guy in front of us talking about how, you know, he, I've seen him before. He goes regularly to these things and he's, um, I don't remember his name is Casey. I don't remember his last name, but he's video cinematographer, done things with rock stars, movies, it, it, the whole nine yards. Okay. So, you know, he's one of these guys that normally just walks through the door and the bouncer's like, Hey, Casey, you're in here. doesn't matter. Okay. Right. So he gets, he decides he wants to go get a smoke. So he walks away and Billy, Dwayne is walking in the gutter by us doing you know long black hair white shirt mosey finger guns nod I'm like oh my god and everyone's around there going was that him oh that was him <laughs> and it's of course all us girls are freaking out and half the guys that are in line they're waiting for this have wandered off somewhere else they miss it's like yeah your fault you did it Toyota so um, we get inside, I get my my, uh, my my autographs, I get pictures, I get hugs from all three of them. Made me my night. Um, watch the movie, we all giggled, we screamed, we squawked because we're, we are, you know, we are children of the 80s for the most part. There were seven, seven kids there, okay? Like young teen and younger. And of course, this is, this is a sack horror film fest thing, so there's Gorlesque. So we right. had the burlesque dancers that are door influenced. And we kept saying over and over again, okay, guys, so this is going to be happening. I see kids here. Um, so Rob, Rob Roberts, God, I love you. Love you so like, much. Are you sure you want your kids Just to saying, see this? Yeah. Are you prepared for this? Well, they, we take an intermission before the burlesque happens um, after the movie. And two of the younger girls leave. Okay, your kids leave. Everyone else is still there. We, we lose maybe 20% of the audience. You know, they, they're there for the, the, the meet and greet. They're there for the whatever the heck, but they didn't, they, we didn't do the meet and greet yet. You know, they're done. They leave. Okay, fine. They do the burlesque. There's a teenage girl. She got like 13. One row over, two rows ahead, you know, and she's like watching it going, I know that person. <laughs> <laughs> yeah you probably do sweetheart but she had fun they did question and answers it wasn't a long question and answer because most of us have been you know fans forever we have delved into the lost boys we know all about it yeah um probably know it better than they do in some cases at, at some point possibly uh billy is amazing now when you watch him on on screen in the, the movie you think you know stoner dude because he's you know 80s glam rock vampire to hear him stoner dude because he's 80s glam rock not vampire but he's awesome um jerome was fabulous great stories about you know being there and and, and what they had to go through and, and how it was starting out as, as this is just a, a, a basically a no-name cast he went there because he wanted the eye candy mm -hmm. and then we stayed because this is young Jamie, young, you know, everybody, and they bloomed. And, uh, but hearing, hearing how G Tom Mack was given the, the, you know, I have a, a movie. I want, want you to write the title song, but I can't show you anything right now. Let me send you the script and they overnight it to him. Saturday morning, he gets it. And he's reading it and he's like, yes, I have an idea. And so he starts humming it and writing it through. 
He's in New York. He goes downstairs. He gets his taxi cab, and the taxi driver is an Indian guy who's blaring his music. He goes, can Can you turn it down? What you hate any music? No, no, no. I'm a composer. I have a song in my mind. So the taxi driver turns the music down, and they're working it together. Okay, and then they get to his studio, and he goes up there, and he's he's trying to figure out something, and his neighbor's got a. The heartbeat mm-hmm. beating in the other room right for 45 minutes he's warming up he's stuck on something so he goes to his neighbor says, can i steal that i have a song and it fits perfectly and the neighbor's like yeah why not because i'm just lollygagging everyone knows that heartbeat everyone knows that heartbeat because that's the opening of the movie right mm-hmm. and you tell max like you know okay cool records it by Sunday night, Monday it's overnighted, or Monday morning it's, it's been overnighted to the, the, the film studio, to right. on set. And he gets a call from Keeper Sutherland in the background yelling, we love this song! It's blaring in the background. They're filming to it now. It has become already the theme song. Right. No cravats, no... Um, no, no, put this in here. It was literally run it how you want to run it. Freaking amazing. He goes to the, the, the closed stage premiere. And originally, you know, you have the opening. Everyone knows the opening. You come across the water going to, to Santa Cruz. Or sorry, Santa Carla. And it, it, it's still Santa Cruz. Yeah. yeah. So um, <laughs> call it whatever fictional town you want. We know it's Santa Cruz. Exactly. Anyway, anyway. So um, as it's going there, originally... The song had him singing in it, not just the music and the choir, which was originally four boys, and it became all the boys and you know picking it through there and 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 he's all, I like it, take my voice off. And they're all what? And you know, take my voice off. And they play the track again and it's quiet and they're like, Oh, soul it just Good like decision, that. Right. So, you know, listen to this, I'm like Well, you hear that song, it can't be any more vampire. Exactly. Really. So I'm leaning forward. I'm 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 so intent on this, and then um, they they do the Gorlesque more bits, and Tom Matt comes up on stage and plays "Cry Little Sister." Now it's it's acoustic, okay? Mm-hmm. He's got a buddy on keyboard. He's on an electric acoustic guitar. It sounds like the the third movie's rendition of it, okay? Because okay. things evolve, right? And we are all drooling, and and he's playing in the background on the stage. Our scenes from Lost Boys, the musical. Mm. The musical is going to be talking about where the vampires came from, how we got Star, how we got everybody. So it's it's yeah. <laughs> so I'm excited for this. I'm bouncing in my chair, and the guy, you know, there's a seat open next to me. The guy next to me, and four people down, are we're all bouncing. <laughs> yes, yes. And as we're like, okay, he did the song. We're all getting getting ready to go. He whips out when you're strange, and we are all now standing up and singing. And I'm recording because, oh my God, we are singing this with him, and he's just howling because you know he can see the smile on his face. After he's like, that was the best thing I've ever done. It just said it had to come out right then and there, and the entire audience is still here. I'm like, you should record that part. But it was fabulous. So then, you know, pack up my, my stuff. I got my pictures because I got pictures from me. I got pictures from my Heather. Autographed by everybody. I walk 
out by the the, the autograph slash merch tables and i say you know thank you so much for being here to jerome and to billy because g tom is still on the stage trying to come back down and um billy comes out from behind the table and gave me another hug <laughs> it really shined on you then, oh didn't my they? goodness i was so happy for that <laughs> i i left this the the theater now normally that theater bites me okay that theater gives me migraines i woke up with a migraine saturday morning i had to cancel plans that i had planned saturday morning because of my my brain oozing out my ears I go in there and I can feel the theater still biting. I mean, I think it's actually not the theater itself. I think it's the cleansing units or cleansing chemicals they use in there. Because it's, anyhow. Could be, because I get the same reaction when I go into it. So, um, you know, I'm, I'm just, you know, bouncing off the walls and skipping out to the car. And the, the culmination of it all, the G-Tom neck is walking up piece with, with the troop of six of these Gorlesque dancers that we had come out first. And the troop says to me, hey, hey, I want to let you know, I love your outfit. You look amazing tonight. And G-Tom Max like, yeah, man, I love your outfit so much. I'm still in my dragonflies, my, my dragonfly mask. I'm in my tie-dye stuff. I'm like, I just got stopped by a troop that works with whips and cats and nine tails. That's not my cup of tea, but look amazing on stage. And they told me they like my outfit. And a singer of my one of my favorite songs ever agreed wholeheartedly i'm like oh yeah i'm good for the night i was gonna go get myself food i wanted to go to denny's i realized no i should get myself some mcdonald's i'll go home and bounce off the walls so you could <laughs> die happy after that, oh yeah. god i i i, <laughs> I slept fitfully but my that was because i kept having dreams of, of of my my what i wanted to do in vampire game before of how i would run a character that ran parallel or uh -huh. in that the lost boy, you know, that the, the vampire troop gave the troop. So, you know, yeah, it was, it was, it was a night. And I'm sorry, taking your own time, but oh my God, I had to share that. Cause yeah. Oh my God. That's yeah, okay. That's okay. It's, you know, it's fun to hear stories like that. Oh and God. I hope that our listeners enjoy hearing that I, as well. I hope, it, I hope I didn't bore anyone, but oh my goodness, it was so worth it. <laughs> well, there is something I want to talk about before we start to mm -hmm. last week's episode. I got another EVP on the, on the computer while we were recording. Mm -hmm. Tracy and Adri both heard this. Yes. And it's very, very, <laughs> very clear. And very it wasn't clear. Me. Very strange. And okay. yeah, Tracy got a chill just hearing it. Yes. If you listen at about the five minute, 48 second mark on the podcast, you're going to hear me blow a raspberry at Adri for something she said. Mm -hmm. And then right after, there's a growl. Yes. Yep. None of us did it. No, not one of us. That was not something we were even we were even aware of. No. 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 Just happened to list, be listening to the playback, and and I caught that. I'm like, wait a minute, that's not me. I don't think it's Tracy or Adri. Mm -hmm. What is it? But then we've also, like I said, we've had past episodes where we've heard other things that weren't there. Someone saying hi twice, once in the beginning of an episode, once at the end of the episode. Yep. I did a little EVP session today asking a couple questions and I asked, are you excited to be on the podcast tonight? And you can barely hear it, but there's a soft voice going, yes. <laughs> Just like that. So if you hear anything, 
let us know. Yes. I'm excited to hear if you guys hear anything that's not us. But anyway, um, we should probably get into the podcast now. <laughs> <laughs> but, you know, it's yeah. been one of those days. Well, let's get started. Okay, so tonight we're going to talk about um, UFO abductee disappearances and and deaths for that matter. And what I'm what I'm talking about is abductees who never return, or they disappear for a while, come back dead body, and no one under no one knows the circumstances of their demise or their disappearance. So I'm going to start with one that's actually one of my favorites. And that's Jim Sullivan's UFO and the story of his strange disappearance. And when I say UFO, I'm actually referring to his album. Uh, first widespread report of abduction of Americans by extraterrestrials happened in 1961 in New Hampshire. Barney and Betty Hill on September 19th spotted a bright object in the sky on their drive back to Portsmouth from Niagara Falls. Something that Betty described as appearing like a falling star, only it fell upward. It soon became clear that the couple, to the couple that the bright object they saw in the sky had been following them, eventually causing the couple to stop the car and get out. The pancake-shaped object ahead of them hovered closer to the ground and opened up to reveal nearly a dozen humanoids, but definitely not human figures, communicating for them to stay where they were. Are, sorry. A few beeps and clicks later, their consciousnesses were dulled, their watches stopped working, and three hours seemed to have gone missing. The X-Files referenced the incident in one of its best-known episodes. While James Earl Jones and Estelle Parsons depicted the couple in the UFO incident, and an entirely new genre of conspiracy theory was born. Now that I've set all that groundwork out, why are you laughing? Nothing. It's not that funny. No, no, it had nothing. People were abducted. That's not what I'm laughing about, Channel Surf. Okay. Nope, I didn't Channel Surf. It's what you said sounded like something else for a second. That's why I, I fixed it in the edit. Not bad. She misheard okay. a word, and I know I now click on what word Thank she you. misheard. Okay. Yeah. Should we talk it about rhymes, the word? Oh, rhymes with born. Oh. Okay. <laughs> no, I did not say that. I, I know. My brain, like, what? what? So, so we already know there's probably something out there just about that. Maybe. Probably so. And if I may continue now. Yes. <laughs> sure, why not? There are those who tell you that the Hills encounter with little gray men was nothing more than a fugue state caused by stress and marital problems. Well, no, think about it. They were a biracial couple mm -hmm. in the 60s. Mm -hmm. I'm sure they had a lot of problems. Oh, yeah. And if I remember correctly, it was somewhere near a sundown town, too. So. Exactly. So, um. To con uh, I'm sorry, I lost my train of thought here. Or perhaps they just influenced by science fiction movies and TV. Uh, the Twilight Zone's third season had only begun four days earlier. Not that I think that had anything to do with it. Me neither. But The Hills Encounter is at least partially responsible for our cultural fascination with alien abduction. Inspiring a number of books and movies, and perhaps less literally, popular songs. Through the 1950s, though the 1950s gave us flying purple people eater, it wasn't until the 60s that non-novelty acts began to dabble in visitations from the cosmos. In 1966, the birds narrated close encounters from those strangers that came every night in Mr. Spaceman. And in 1969, Credence Clearwater Revival jumped out of the bayou and into the stars with It Came From the Sky. 
Psychedelic rock began to bring sci-fi concepts to the foreground toward the end of the decade, with Pink Floyd even titling their second album, A Saucer Full of Secrets. Which brings to mind images of twirling spacecraft in the sky, and David Bowie launched an entire lifetime's worth of alien mythology with his astronaut ballad, Space Oddity. In the case of Jim Sullivan's UFO, the aliens beaming down from the sky might be the second coming of Jesus Christ himself as well as the beginning of a wholly different conspiracy theory. So Jim Sullivan became something of a legend indirectly through this bit of extraterrestrial mythology, but he wasn't around to see it happen. Native of San Diego, Sullivan became a staple of Hollywood clubs in the 1960s, becoming friends with actors like Lee Majors and Harry Dean Stanton, even landing a small part in Easy Rider. It sounds pretty good on paper, but whatever successful Sullivan had locally turned out to be increasingly difficult to turn into a successful recording career. Despite the fact that his wife worked at Capitol Records, the famed label passed on his debut album UFO, which was instead picked up by the smaller Monty imprint, and at the time was released to low sales and little to no radio impact. Which is kind of sad because I've actually listened to the album and it's not bad. Not bad if you like psychedelic country. <laughs> Check it out. I've been listening to a lot of Franz uh, Schultz. Mm-hmm. And? So it's, it's psychedelic, <laughs> period. Okay. <laughs> period. Gotcha. So a follow-up ended up being released on the short-lived Playboy Records, part of Hugh Hefner's media empire, but that too proved disappointing. His career flailing, Sullivan sought refuge in alcohol, and in turn, his marriage fell apart. So seeking a fresh start, Sullivan left Los Angeles for Nashville in his Volkswagen Beetle on March 4th, 1975. After arriving in New Mexico the next day, Sullivan would never be seen again. And here's where it gets freaky. Sullivan's disappearance remains one of the great mysteries of popular music. He left very few clues as to where he went or what he was doing at the time he went missing. He checked into the La Mesa Motel in Santa Rosa, New Mexico, but he never actually slept there. He was last seen at a ranch 26 miles away where he left his car full of all of his earthly belongings, including his money, his guitar, and a box of unsold records. And though later a body thought to be Sullivan's was found a few miles away, it turned out to be someone else. So nobody knows what happened to Sullivan, but theories abound. Some, some believe he was murdered, or that possibly while intoxicated, he became disoriented and wandered off, ultimately dying of exposure in the desert. There's a less plausible but still possible idea that he might have simply disappeared by choice, but there's one theory that follows the lore surrounding Jim Sullivan after all his time. After all this time, sorry. Mm -hmm. He was possibly abducted by aliens. The reason being is the song that Jim Sullivan uh, produced... Uh, created this theory and it still persists basically it's a funny coincidence that six years before he vanished Sullivan should happen to release a song about extraterrestrial visitors and he just so happened to go missing in New Mexico the very state where the famed Roswell incident occurred in 1947 kicking off generations worth of suspicions over government cover-ups and airplane hangars full of flying saucers that being said, UFO isn't so much a prophecy as it is a warm and good-humored psychedelic country folk song about visions of faith. In UFO, Sullivan sings of checking out the show with glassy eye. 
getting a front row seat to the dancing light in the sky before him. It's neither tongue-in-cheek nor entirely straight-faced. Sullivan is, isn't entirely dismissive of what he sees, nor is he suspending all disbelief. There's a kind of casual, what well, would you look at that kind of attitude to his observation. But the sense of wonder is central to the song, his quiet awe echoed by a swirl of strings and layers of flutes. It's a little otherworldly in the same way that a lot of late 60s folk psychedelia, psychedelia is, but it's still a rich and comforting sound. In listening to UFO, it's easy to hear why this is an appealing theory about what happened to Jim Sullivan. Not because it's likely, but because it provides some kind of comfort. In UFO, he's enthralled by what he's seeing, but it's a feel-good vibe. Like maybe those aliens just might be all right after all. Let's hope so. <laughs> the truth about Sullivan is probably less outlandish, but a lot sadder. He probably died alone in the middle of the desert, which is likely. And that's something that most of us probably wouldn't want to fathom. I mean, I mean, he was prone to alcohol. Like the fancy. Yeah. Alcohol. He went off on his own. He could have gone out and taken a walk in the desert, drunk, and just never came back. Mm -hmm. So it's possible. But I like the UFO theory better anyway. <laughs> <laughs> So given the circumstances, anyone in his position would probably prefer to be the subject of an urban legend, too. And when you think of Sullivan looking toward the sky at the incredible sight before him, one can't help but smile at the thought of him on some interstellar journey beyond our understanding. So what do you think of that? Elvis didn't die. Elvis went home. <laughs> I remember that. I'm sorry. <laughs> so I just, yeah, this first thing that came to mind is, you know, it's it's one of those not that that he was and I, I'm using the quote or the the, the not quote the the paraphrasing from Men in Black yep. okay but <clears throat> things that happen you know yes you can go in the desert you could die of exposure there are animals that can take you away if take your bones away but but really truly people that go in and disappear completely disappear and he left his stuff there and and maybe whole, he was being called back maybe he was following the voice maybe. the whole thing's a little weird yeah. yeah i mean not a lot of explanation who leaves behind his belongings especially yeah. things like his wallet his guitar i mean that was his bread and butter there mm -hmm. was the guitar he was headed to nashville to start a new career yeah, no reason just to wander off in the desert and not come back. Exactly. So maybe it was aliens. Maybe it was. Who knows? Maybe he was, you know, fulfilling his purpose and was taken away. Could be. So who'd like to do the next one? Adrian's nodding no. <laughs> I guess that means you. That would be me. Mm -hmm. So This one's kind of a cool story, too. It looks interesting from what I've read over it. Mm -hmm. So it's BC, BC's. Granger Taylor left a note saying he was boarding an alien spaceship and then disappeared. And by BC, we refer to British Columbia. Yes. So I was figuring. For the, those who weren't sure. <laughs> uh, Granger Taylor was, by all accounts, a mechanical genius. He hauled out. He hauled an old train out of the forest to restore it, rebuilt a World War II aircraft, and even made his own spaceship. To top it off, he supposedly believed he could communicate with aliens. Then one night at age 32, Taylor mysteriously vanished from the Hold on, hold on, back up. 32. So I said. 
It sounded like you said 72. 32. 32. Okay. I'm sorry. 32. My bad. My bad. Please continue. Yes, we all have hearing issues today. The joys of, of having a speech impediment. <laughs> uh, so then one night at age 32, Taylor mysteriously <laughs> vanished from the face of the earth. Uh, his disappearance on the stormy night of November 29th, 1980, Granger Taylor left a note for his parents to find it. It said he'd gone to board an alien spaceship after reoccurring dreams had told him to go to embark on a 42-month interstellar jury. Journey, not jewelry. Quote, 2911-1980. Dear mother and father, I have gone away to walk aboard an alien spaceship as reoccurring dreams assured 42-month interstellar voyage to explore the vast universe and return. I'm leaving behind all my possessions to you as I will no longer require use of these, of, of any, sorry. Please use the instructions in my will as a guide to help. Love, Granger. That night, Taylor vanished. Both his family and the police spent months searching for him, but no one could find uncover any leads where Taylor could be. In March 1986, local forestry workers found a blown-down vehicle somewhere between, somewhere near BC's Mount Provost, and not far from the Taylor family home. Taylor was familiar with dynamite, and some had gone missing from his parents' property the night he disappeared. Police were called, and they were able to confirm that the vehicle identification number. On the wreckage match, Taylor's thoughts and pickup. Bone fragments and a piece of Taylor's shirt were also found on the scene. Many questions surrounded the disappearance. Was he abducted by aliens and taken to space? Did delusions cause Taylor to blow himself up that night? Was it all an elaborate hoax that Taylor created so he could disappear and start a new life? Was he recruited by a secret spy agency, or did he die by suicide, masking his intentions with a suspicious note to ease the burden of his family? Taylor struggled to fit in with his small Vancouver Island community. He was shy and, and eccentric, which was an ideal combination when living in a rural, hard-working class town. It's believed that Taylor spent much of his, so much of his time on machines because it was the only true way of expressing himself. His creations made him feel like there was a purpose to life. It's conceivable that at some point he got tired of being different and, ser and searching meeting on Earth, at least. At the time of Taylor's disappearance, pop culture was alive with the idea that something was out there in space, and Taylor became obsessed with interstellar travel. Soon he was building a spaceship and imagining starting a new life. Pardon me, a new life elsewhere, somewhere else. Hmm. Sorry. No worries. He believed he was chosen. It's unclear what fueled his belief that he could communicate with aliens. There is some evidence to suggest Taylor used his psychedelic drugs. It's well documented that he smoked quite a little of cannabis. He also may have been prone to, to depression and mania, which could have played a role in some way. For whatever the reasons, Taylor was convinced extraterrestrials had chosen him to fulfill a greater universal purpose, something that far exceeded anything he could accomplish on our planet. Okay. It's another one. I, I'm curious to know more about the blown up vehicle. Yeah, they found bone fragments. Did they test them to see yeah, if they how, were how, or well, well, she animals? Said it doesn't say. So, we 1980s, don't know for sure. they would be able to at least have some DNA evidence. Beginning, blood beginning, yeah, you'd have blood typing if there was a finger left around the fossil bone fingerprints. Marrow. Bone marrow wasn't wasn't thing quite yet. Well, we're um, talking we're talking about. Uh, 1980. Yeah. Um, DNA evidence was in its infinite yeah. infancy then. So what I'm curious is, is yes, vehicles blown to smithereens, but it still shows sign of wear. Mm -hmm. So if it blew up 
four years or six years prior when they found in 86, it would show signs of corrosion. So I'm curious how long the vehicle was there. And I know it was a stormy night, mm -hmm. but thunder does not sound the same as Oh no! At least it those, you know M80s. Okay, so that's what I'm. I'm around. I, uh, my, Thunder and dynamite are two different creatures. My mom had a friend. We take out to. We would all go out to the uh, National Monument in Grand Junction, Colorado, and there was an old vehicle out there that they'd take dynamite to and explode. Mm -hmm. And I went out there one one day with them, and they'd stick the dynamite stick in and light it, run like hell. Just right. in time, just in time <laughs> for the stick to go off and the car to explode. And it does make a hellacious noise. So yes, stormy night's that. one thing, but you would hear the Ooh. difference. Mm -hmm. And thunder doesn't give it gives percussion, but it doesn't give the percussion wave. True. Okay. I was just recently at this last spring storm we had, there was a thunder cell over the house. Yes, things shake, but it's not the same as that M80 that went off. Two doors away from my house, and, and right out the windows that went off. That uh, happened when we were living in Rancho Cordova yeah. when it hit the uh, pick and pull. Yeah, was that, about that was hellacious. Yeah. That was so. So yeah. mom and dad should have been able to hear the dynamite, especially since it happened so close to yes, their residence, close to home. Right. You would hear the dynamite. I mean, M80s are pretty dang loud, and mm -hmm. that's what I'm used to. And that's a quarter stick of dynamite. So. Right. If you're using the whole thing. No, I have a theory. It could be bunnies. It's silly. It could be bunnies, <laughs> but I don't think so. <laughs> he was building, among all the other things, a spaceship. Mm -hmm. Maybe he thought the dynamite would be good propulsion. Could be. Light a stick, shoot that sucker up in the air. But they said car, not. I know. So. But um, maybe, who knows, maybe he wrecked his car on purpose. Because he knew he was leaving. Maybe he was brought back and poof, be gone. Because mm -hmm. he said 42 months. That is, that is just shy of four years and right. he was gone for six years. So mm -hmm. they find two years of, of of rust damage on this vehicle. Then it's that plausible. That into the whole thing. It's plausible. But it's plausible. They don't he was there say, the whole time, right. <laughs> I don't know. It's another rabbit hole for me to fall down, damn it. Yep. <laughs> <laughs> The processing of commercial information is complete. Back to the show. Okay, so I'm going to talk about uh, Frederick Valentich. I don't know if you guys are familiar with his story. I was reading it a bit. I have vague memories of it. I think I might have used him in one of my uh, my high school reports because I, I did something on Project Blue Book that was released and picked off a bunch of Catholic teachers because every report I wrote was having to do with sci-fi, mm -hmm. UFOs, paranormal, yeah. Well, that's a Catholic teacher for you. Yeah. Especially the nuns. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> for other guys who didn't quite make it as priests. Mm -hmm. Yeah. <laughs> Anywho. So, okay, let me get into it then. Frederick Valentich was an Australian pilot who disappeared while on a 125 nautical mile or 232 kilometer training flight in a Cessna 182L light aircraft registered VH-DSJ 
over Bass Strait on the evening of Saturday, 21st, October, 1978. Did somebody just walk over your grave, dear? No? Okay. <laughs> I'm fine. Okay. As long as you're fine. Just pain. All right. So described as a flying saucer enthusiast, 20-year-old Valentich informed Melbourne Air Traffic Control that he was being accompanied by an aircraft about 1,000 feet, 300 meters above him, and that his engines had begun running roughly before finally reporting it's not an aircraft. There were belated reports of a UFO sighting in Australia on the night of the disappearance. However, the Associated Press reported that the Department of Transport was skeptical a UFO was behind Valentich's disappearance, and that some of their officials speculated that Valentich became disoriented and saw his own lights reflected in the water, or lights from a nearby island while flying upside down. Okay. Um, he had about 150 total hours flying time, though, and held a Class 4 instrument rating, which authorized him to fly at night. So he's a fairly accomplished mm -hmm. pilot at that Yeah. Point. What year was this? Um, 79? Oh, sorry, I don't have yeah. this in front of me. Um, yeah, to be able to fly yeah. at night. Well, it authorized him to fly at night, but only in visual meteorological conditions. So clear night, fog, sky. Yeah, clear night skies, basically. Mm -hmm. He had twice applied to enlist in the Royal Australian Air Force, but was rejected because of inadequate educational qualifications. He joined before he could graduate high school, basically. Yes. So he was a member of the RAA, RAAF Air Training Corps, determined to have a career in aviation. Valentich was studying part-time to become a commercial pilot, but had a poor achievement record, having twice failed all five commercial license examination subjects, and as recently as the month before his disappearance, had failed three more commercial license subjects. He actually was a good pilot, but he wasn't the, like he wasn't the brightest maybe? guy, well, and he was a bit of a well. slacker. Yeah, yeah, I I know that feeling. Mm -hmm. So let's see. He'd been involved in flying incidents, for example, straying into a controlled zone in Sydney, for which he received a warning, and twice deliberately flying into a cloud for which prosecution was being considered. According to his father, Guido, Valentich was an ardent believer in UFOs and had been worried about being attacked by them. The destination of Valentich's final flight was King Island, but his motivation for the flight was unknown. He told flight officials that he was going to King Island to pick up some friends while he told others that he was going to pick up crayfish. Later investigations found both stated reasons to be untrue. Valentich had also failed to inform King Island Airport of his intention to land there, going against standard procedure. So everything about this so far is wrong. Yeah, it sounds like he, uh, yeah. Trying to cover his bases somehow, but not covering his bases properly. For all we know, he had a hot date. Or a drug run. There actually is a theory that he had a date and he was going to take her to King Island, but he needed to cover his bases until his his superiors that he was either going to find some friends or he was going to get the crayfish. Yep. Um, but anyway, Valentich Radio Melbourne Flight Service at 7.06 p.m. to report that an unidentified aircraft was following him at 4,500 feet or 1,400 kilometers. Sorry, 1,400 meters. 
he was told there was no known traffic at that level. Flintich said he could see a large unknown aircraft, which appeared to be illuminated by four bright landing lights. He was unable to confirm its type, but said it had passed about 1,000 feet or 300 meters overhead and was moving at high speed. Valentich then reported that the aircraft was approaching him from the east and said the other pilot might be purposely toying with him. Valentich said the aircraft was orbiting above him and that it had a shiny metal surface and a green light on it. Valentich further reported that he was experiencing engine problems. Asked to identify the aircraft, Valentich radioed, it's not an aircraft. His transmission was then interrupted by unidentified noise described as being metallic scraping sounds before all contact was lost. Oh, I wish I had that recording. I've heard the sounds. Uh, it was on a, a different podcast, and they're kind of creepy. i got to say. They're, they are definitely they, they are a scraping sound, but it's nothing that I've ever heard in an aircraft before. Finding the audio recording. Okay. Uh, a sea and air search was undertaken that included ocean-going ship traffic, an RAAF Lockheed P-3 Orion aircraft, plus eight civilian aircraft. The search encompassed over 1,000 square miles, or 2,600 kilometers squared. Search efforts ceased on 25 October 1978 without result. An investigation into Valentich's disappearance by the Australian Department of Transport was unable to determine the cause, but it was presumed fatal for Valentich. Five years after his aircraft went missing, an engine cow flap was found washed ashore on, Fl on Flinders Island. Hmm. In July 1983, the Bureau of Air Safety Investigation asked the Royal Australian Navy Research Laboratory about the likelihood that the cow flap might have traveled to its ultimate position from the region where the aircraft disappeared. The Bureau noted that the part had been identified as having come from a Cessna 182 aircraft between a certain range of serial numbers, which included Valentich's aircraft. It's been proposed that Valentich staged his own disappearance, even taking into account a trip between 30 and 45 minutes to Cape Otway, the single-engine Cessna 182 still had enough fuel to fly 800 kilometers or 500 miles. Despite ideal conditions, at no time was the aircraft plotted on radar, casting doubts as to whether it was ever near Cape Otway. And Melbourne police received reports of a light aircraft making a mysterious landing not far from Cape Otway at the same time as Valentich's disappearance. Now, if they never picked him up on radar, how would the plane have landed there? Yeah. That's, that's iffy. Another proposed explanation is that Valentich became disoriented and was flying upside down. If this were the case, the lights he thought he saw could be his own aircraft's lights reflected in the water. He would then have crashed into the water. However, the model Cessna he was piloting could not have flown inverted for long as it was a gravity-feed fuel system, meaning that its engine would have cut out very quickly. Uh, yeah, it starts sucking all that air because... The gravity the fact that I know you're strapped in, but doesn't gravity still work up there? Yes. Yeah. So <laughs> if you're upside down, would you kind of know it? With you your, would know. your body know? You would know. Sorry, I just thought about that. I actually know. I don't, I'm not so sure about that. A lot of pilots have been Sorry. disoriented Dumping. and yeah. found themselves in an inverted position in their aircraft. Well, okay, so Cessnas so. are not fast, fast 
planes. Not fast in the way that it would. Yes. So if you were having G forces, you could be upside down and not feeling your G forces if you were in, say, a jet because it's actually G forces going forward. Right. Cessna is not not a jet. It's a prop. It's a tiny airplane. Doesn't go very fast. (laughs) Well, it can go fast. They're props. They're not. Didn't they use those for like crop dusting and stuff too? But but either way, even if he was inverted for too long, the engine would have cut out. Yes. Yeah. And he still would have crashed. Oh yeah. I think I have found the sound or the the uh, the the radio. Okay, go for it. Are you sure? Yeah. Okay. Why not? Because you're still in the middle of the thing. That's why. That's okay. So this is I I queued it up. I'm hoping it's the right one. So the volume up more. That's the one. I remember it. <laughs> so, yeah. Now, something else I thought about, too, is from his description, it was moving all over the place. If he was inverted, the lights would have been directly ab- above him. Yeah. You'd be seeing them in the water above him. They wouldn't be to the west or the east or wherever he thought it was coming from. And he said it was all over the place. Mm-hmm. So, it's not that that theory I don't think is very likely. Now, another possibility is suicide. He could have just taken it and plunged it into the water. He could have been fed up with the test taking over and over again, failing. Mm-hmm. And... But interviews with doctors and colleagues who knew him virtually eliminated that possibility, though. Mm-hmm. So, a 2013 review of the radio transcripts, which we just heard, mm-hmm. and other data by astronomer and retired United States Air Force pilot James McGaha. And author Joe Nickel proposes that the inexperienced Valentich was deceived by the illusion of a tilted horizon for which he attempted to compensate and inadvertently put his aircraft into a downward so-called graveyard spiral, which he initially mistook for simple orbiting of the aircraft. According to the authors, the G-force of a lightning spiral would decrease fuel flow, resulting in the rough idling reported by Valentich. Megaha and Nickel also proposes that the apparently stationary overhead lights that Valentich reported were probably the plane, the planets Venus, Mars, and Mercury, along with the bright star Antares, which would have behaved in a way consistent with Valentich's description. I'm not sure I buy that one either. Well, 
once again, you know, fly, flying is its own its own creature. So I can get the, the tightening circle, and he's flying at night. Yes, so mm -hmm. possibly, but once again, you know, you you have the problem of it's a Cessna. It's going to give you other signs. Yes, you're flying by 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 meters, uh, or you know, by by your your. Yeah, your meters, your you know, your different bits on your console. Your gauges and stuff, it's yeah. not going to be the the high fancy ones we have today, but it only 150 hours. But at the same point, it's 150 hours. And then I'm thinking they're taking the easy way out with that explanation, and that's just you know the daughter of someone who fixed planes. Well, yeah, I mean, even <laughs> back then, you had the gauge that showed the horizon. Yes, line. you had you had a horizon gauge. So if he was on nose, if he had. Going, gone into a, a nosedive or a graveyard spiral, as he said, it would have shown yep. the mm -hmm. the gauge would have been all over the place, right? His 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 altimeter would have been showing where he's at. It would have been showing the the, the uh, yeah how close to the ground he was at that point too. It, it doesn't say you know the the it doesn't say you're inverted, mm -hmm. but there's yeah. It sounds it, it sounds from what I've read here like a way to explain away what happened yes. rather than it being the actual truth. That's what it sounds like to me. It yep. says, this could have happened. Mm -hmm. Wink, wink, nudge, nudge. So anyway, ufologists, we'll get into that now. They've speculated that extraterrestrials either destroyed Valentich's aircraft or abducted him, asserting that some individuals reported seeing an erratically moving green light in the sky and that he was in a steep dive at the time. Ufologists believe these accounts are significant because of the green light mentioned in Valentich's radio transmissions. The group Ground Saucer Watch, based in Phoenix, Arizona, United States, claims that photos taken by plumber Roy Manifold on the day of Valentich's disappearance show a fast-moving object exiting the water near Cape Otway Lighthouse. According to UFO writer Jerome Clark, Ground Saucer Watch argued that they showed a bona fide unknown flying object of moderate dimensions, apparently surrounded by a cloud-like vapor, exhaust residue, Although the, pic the pictures were not clear enough to identify the object. Now, I've seen this picture, too, um, and I have to agree, it's you can't really identify what it is, but you can pretty much tell it's not an aircraft, okay. at least not a known aircraft. Ooh, dun, dun, dun. Dun, dun, dun. Maybe it's a secret military plane. Sorry. Who knows? Anyway. Who knows? There's, <laughs> Sorry. there's military bases in Australia. Some of them are U.S.-owned. Wasn't talking about the U.S. You know, the Australians have their own. Everybody's area. got their secrets. Everybody's yes. got their area Every country yes. has their secrets. Yep, yep, yep. Yep. So you want to tell the next one, Tracy? Sure, sure, sure. Okay. So this one is the, uh, this Air Force jet was scrambled to intercept the UFO, then disappeared. The night, an Air Force jet mysteriously disappeared over Lake Superior, November 23rd, 1953, was a stormy one. Near the U.S.-Canadian border, a U.S. Defense, Air Defense Command noticed a blip on the radar where it shouldn't have been. An unidentified object <laughs> in restricted airspace over Lake Superior, not far from the Sulaks, the Great Lakes' most vital commercial gate, uh, gateway. An F-8... Uh, F Dang it, I can read today, I swear. An F-89C Scorpion jet from Trex Air Force Base in Madison, Wisconsin, took off from a nearby Kincross Air Force Kincross Air Force Base. The jet from Trex Air Force Base in Madison, Wisconsin, took off from nearby Air Force Base Kinross 
Well, the jet was from that's the one base, but it took off from the other base. Yeah, that's what blew my mind. I was right, right, right. Going from channel, from A to B and getting you know Z, which is not right. Uh, two crew members on board. The first lieutenant Felix Monkla, who clocked 811 hours flying, including 121 in a similar aircraft, took the pilot seat. While second lieutenant Robert Wilson was observing the radar, the men would not return from this mission. What followed, according to Donald Kehoe, the former Marine Corps naval aviator and UFO researcher who wrote about this incident in his 1955 book, The Flying Saucer Conspiracy, was one of, quote, the strangest cases on record, end quote. Two radar blips coverage. So once airborne, Lieutenant Wilson had difficulty tracking the unknown object, which kept changing course. Ground control directing the aviators with the radio, the Scorpion gave chase. Jet traveling 500 miles an hour pursued the object for 30 minutes, gaining, gradually closing in. On the ground, the radar operator guided down, the jet down from 25,000 feet to 7,000 feet, watching one blip chase the other across the radar screen. Gradually, the jet caught up to the unknown object about 70 miles off Keweenaw Point in Upper Michigan, at an altitude of 8,000 feet, approximately 160 miles southwest of the of Sulox. <coughs> At that point, the two radar blips converged into one, locked together, as Kehoe would put it later. And then, according to an official incident report, the radar returned from the F-89 simply, quote, disappeared from the GCI, ground control interception, station's radar scope, end quote. And the first radar return, indicating the unidentified object, veered off and vanished, too. So right there, basically, the jet converged with the UFO. And then the UFO. So you got the one blip, and then suddenly it veers off, yep. and the plane's not there yep. anymore. The United States Air Force, <clears throat> United States Coast Guard, and Canadian Air Force note that extensive search and rescue efforts, no wreckage, no sign of pilots was ever found. The, <clears throat> sorry, the Air Force's official news release about the disappearance delivered to the Associated Press said the Venice jet was. Followed, followed by a radar until it merged with an object 70 miles off of Keweenaw Point in Upper Michigan. The statement appeared in a story of the Chicago Tribune with the headline, two, as a jet two aboard vanishes over Lake Superior. The Air Force soon retracted the statement and changed the story. According to the new statement, the ground control radar operator misread the scope. And in fact, the F-89 has successfully completed the mission, intercepting and identifying the UFO as a Dakota Royal Canadian Air Force C-47 aircraft, flying some 30 miles off course. But uh, C-37 aircraft means C is huge. Mm -hmm. Just saying. Uh, the, uh, Lieutenant Monica probably chicken with vertigo, crashed into the lake during the return to base. Canadian officials refuted the account. No flights had taken place in the area that night. According to Kehoe, who would write about the Kinross X incident again in 1973, the book Aliens from Space, two separate Air Force representatives provided Lieutenant Monclos' window with contrary explanations of the incident. I mean, as a widow, not as window. Sorry, widow, widow not window. <laughs> it's I, okay. <laughs> I don't think the window would care. Window probably wouldn't care, but, you know, it makes some sense in my little pet broken brain. Mm -hmm. um, jump again. Stop jumping. Thank you. In oh, one Michael. version of events, the pilot had crashed in the lake while flying too low, and the other, the jet exploded at high altitude. 
seems to be the case with the UFO encounters. So if a plane crashes, they were flying too low. Or they crash, you know, or, they're or, in a nosewood dive yeah. or something like that. Now, if that were the case, though, wouldn't it have been on the radar? It would have been on the radar mm -hmm. up until a point because there was a radar dead zone, but... But you'd still see... You'd see where... You'd see the, 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 the other craft separate from that one. In theory, yes. Right. But then again, this is all in theory. Um, according to Kehoe... Wait, the, uh, sorry. The case file from Project Blue Book, the Air Force's own UFO investigate mm -hmm, investigation team, reiterated that the Air Force assertion that the jet successfully accomplished its mission and the crash was an accident probably caused by attack of vertigo. It attributed this abnormal behavior, radar behavior, to unusual atmospheric conditions. It deemed the inability to recover records as understandable given the deep water. Now, I trust Project Blue Book's report as much as I trust... Uh, that I can comfortably throw a VW Beetle? That'll work. <laughs> Because Did I project... ever make that rich black man? Sorry. <laughs> you I actually you went Taylor. there. Okay. I miss you, Taylor, so much. <laughs> there you go. But I mean, we're talking about Project Blue Book back in the day. Project Blue Book was a tool to skeptically denounce UFO incidents. Yes, it was. It was a tool to 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 track and modify, mm -hmm. so that when it got out to us mundanes. It wouldn't be a frightening thing. Right. Yeah. Because we're too stupid to, you know. How is it put by, by um, <laughs> K in Men in Black? People are smart, or a person is smart. People are stupid. True. Because yep. they'll panic over everything. So, yeah. Um, meanwhile, investigators from the National Investigations Committee on Aerial Phenomena and ICAP. NICAP. NICAP. Yeah, it's called NICAP. Um, I like it. NICAP, that's mm -hmm. me. Discovered that any mention of the mission had been expunged from all official records. Mm, imagine that. And hmm. the Airspace Technical Intelligence Center's official line on the case was, there's no record of the U.S. Air Force files of sighting in Ken Ross Air Force Base on the 23rd of November, 1953. There is no case in the files which even closely parallels these circumstances. That's because they expunged it from the record. Yep. The absence of thought, of thorough and satisfying official explanation of civilian saucer groups, as Project Blue Books will call them, developed their own theories. According to one, the jetty crashed into UFOs, projected beam like a concrete wall. Others speculated that it may not have been, that the jet may have been scooped out of the air and taken aboard the spacecraft, perhaps so the captured men would teach their alien captors English language. Oh, pardon me. In 1968, there were local newspaper reports of military jet fragments discovered near the lake shore. I'm sorry, the shore of Lake Superior, but the find was never verified. In 2006, Adam Jimenez, claiming to be representative of the Great Lakes Dive Company, corresponded with UFO bloggers and members of the UFO community. He claimed that not only had an airplane been discovered in the area, but metallic objects uh, resembling a chunk of flying saucer as well. UFO researchers soon expressed exposed inaccuracies in Jimenez's story, and concluded that the Great Lakes Dive Company did not exist. Eventually, Adam Jimenez too vanished without a trace. So, you've got an incident that's been reported that didn't happen. You've got an eyewitness who found wreckage that wasn't there. Yes. 
that disappeared himself. Yes. Sounds like a cover up to me. Just a little bit. Somebody's he hiding his something. mouth. Let's let's make him disappear. Mm -hmm. Just feels that way. Mm -hmm. It's all very men in black. Yep, very. Well, I guess the last one falls on me since. Sorry. Uh, that's all right. No. For no. for those listening, Adrian is uh, having one of those bad juju days, <laughs> for lack of a better word. Yep. High pain threshold levels. There you go. I like bad juju day though. You can like it. Mm -hmm. Sure. Fine. <laughs> okay. This last one, unlike the previous disappearances, in this case, the body was found. Really? Mm -hmm. But the mystery surrounding this particular disappearance of a Yorkshire miner in 1980 was no less baffling. Leaving police baffled and prompting alien abduction conspiracy theories. Zygmunt Adamski went missing in mysterious circumstances from his home in Thornfield Crescent at Tingley near Wakefield in June of 1980. The 56-year-old miner at Lofthouse Colliery, Colliery, sorry, who was known to many as Ziggy, had set off on June 6 on a walk to the local shops to buy groceries. It was the last time that Polish-born Mr. Adamski was seen alive. His wife Lottie's initial suspicion was that he had been kidnapped. Five days after he disappeared, coal yard worker Trevor Parker found his body on top of a 10-foot-high pile of coal at his father's coal yard in Todd Morton, around 20 miles from Tingley. Tingley? Tingley. You know, like the Tingler, but with a Y. <laughs> he was wearing a suit, but his shirt was missing, as were his watch and wallet. Sounds like a robbery, basically. His clothes were said to be improperly fastened, and he had only one day of beard growth. I remember he'd been gone for a while. Yeah. Uh, Mr. Adamski's hair had also been cropped short in a roughly cut manner. So at some time during his disappearance, he was barbered. Yep. His body was also covered in burn marks on his neck, his head, and shoulders. His face, it was reported, showed absolute terror, but there were no injuries to explain the cause of death. The burns were said to be covered in a strange ointment, which could not be identified by scientists. So what happened, and how did he end up in Todd Morton? What year was this? 1980. Yep. They Those figure out what the ointment was by analysis in the um, 80s? Something they couldn't identify, identify it. So anyway, so what happened? Those questions haven't been answered, but this hasn't stopped speculation and the development of some quite outlandish theories. Old. One tabloid newspaper suggested that, that uh, Zygmunt had been abducted and killed by aliens and his body dumped on top of the coal pile. Others put forward theories that he'd been killed by KGB forces or had been left dazed and confused after being struck by a ball lightning or some other unidentified phenomena. Well, that could explain the burns. It could. And the terror. It could. And the funky haircut. Yep. Or the burns could be electrocution through torture. True. Also Sorry, I'm just... The alien abduction theories were given a further boost by Alan Godfrey, the policeman who had been called to the Todd Morton coal yard when Mr. Adamski's body had been found. In November of 1980, five months after Mr. Adamski's body was found, Constable Godfrey had his own encounter with the UFO less than a mile away from the coal yard. The respected policeman made a sketch of the UFO and later, under hypnosis, 
told a story about being taken aboard the UFO and given a physical examination by two non-human entities. The policeman's UFO story made headlines around the world. Mr. Godfrey, now 70 at the time of this writing, told the examiner that the story he told under hypnosis was probably merely a dream, adding, I never said I was abducted by aliens. However, he believes it's possible that Adamski was taken by aliens. He says, I'm open-minded. I can't rule it out. Mr. Godfrey does believe Mr. Adamski was murdered, although he said a more senior police colleague in 1980 believed he'd been killed. He thinks that Mr. Adamski didn't die where he was found, but had been placed there by some, someone or something. He added, he was on top of the coal pile on his back with not a bit of coal on him. His eyes were wide open and he had burn marks. Why would he climb up a stack of coal? Although the coroner re recorded an open verdict ruling that Mr. Adamski did, had died of a heart attack, Mr. Godfrey says there are unanswered questions. There was some ointment on the back of his neck. Samples were sent to a home office laboratory, which couldn't identify it. Okay. So there's your answer on that. I was curious. Well, it pays to be curious. You get your answers sometimes. Mr. Godfrey said he would never forget the look on Mr. Adamski's face. Those eyes were staring up at me. I was looking down on him from a foot away. Those eyes sent a shudder down my spine. They were wide open. He had a look of someone who'd been, who had seen something or someone that had scared him to death. He added, something or someone put him on top of that coal pile, and something scared him to death. Later, Mr. Godfrey spoke to the pathologist who carried out the postmortem on Mr. Adamski's body. He said it was a classic case of someone who'd been scared to death. So, Which in other words, yeah, but physically, there's no cause of death. Yeah. You could actually die from a broken heart, too. I mean, yep. Although I don't think a broken heart had anything to do with No, I'm just saying case. these are things that happen. Yes. Stress on the body. Yes. The former policeman has no idea how the body ended up in the coal pile. How he got there, I don't know. I think something put him there. Notice he says something, not someone. Yes. Mr. Godfrey, who self-published a book, which includes details of the Adamski case, said it had similarities with the alleged alien abduction of American logger Travis Walton in Arizona 1975. You guys know the Walton case, yes. right? Mm -hmm. He, Travis Walton, went missing for five days and he turned up alive. There are similarities. Almost 40 years on the case continues to fascinate investigators and those interested in unexplained deaths. In Tingley, local people still talk about the case. Neil Beecham, who in 1980 was a reporter on Morley Observer, said, Mr. Adamski's mysterious disappearance 37 years ago has always troubled me and is a topic of conversation for the tight-knit community of Tingley, even to this day. Some commentators have suggested that Mr. Adamski may have been abducted, but not by extraterrestrials. Ten years ago, two British UFO investigators looked again at the case, according to reports, they discovered that in, at the time of the disappearance, Mr. Adamski was in the midst of a feud with a family member who was having marital problems and had moved in with the Adamski couple. Hmm. The investigators believe that Mr. Adamski's disappearance may have been an, an abduction linked to the feud. Mr. Godfrey has no information on this angle, but said, we had no reason to suspect any members of the family. Les Hewitt in an article for Historic Mysteries, says the family member 
sorry, the family members believed Mr. Adamski had been abducted and held in a barn before having a heart attack. He concludes the bizarre facts of this case, clothes that were improperly fastened, the body dumped atop a coal heap without noticeable disturbance, burns that were reported to be only two days old with an unidentified gel substance, only one day of beard growth, and another strange encounter with a UFO by the police investigator lead us to imagine all kinds of possible outcomes. So they're not really admitting anything. Yeah. Of course not. Because <laughs> they don't know. Because you talk and run around because we don't know what the heck happened. That's right. And yep, yep, yep. If we admit that we suspect it's this, then, you know, people will think we're crazy or something. Mm-hmm. So a writer for the website, The Iron Skeptic, concluded that aliens played no part in Mr. Adamski's death. This case is just another example of a story that sounds good at first, but that dissolves under direct scrutiny, as are so many stories of space alien abduction. Sure. Yep. <laughs> we know what's right. Yes, that's what they're saying. We know what's going on. Yep. Mm-hmm. Even though, you know, this website uh, probably is a, obviously is a current thing. There were no internet in the 80s, so. Yep. We may never know, but the same point. It's a secondhand guess either way. Exactly. So James Turnbull, the coroner who dealt with Mr. Adamski's death, told the BBC in 2003 that it was the biggest mystery of his career. But he was convinced by any of the theory, but he wasn't convinced actually by any of the theories relating to paranormal activity. He said the question of where he was before he died. Excuse me. Sorry, folks. It's, we, we've got a short episode, but i got to let you know it's been a day. long night trying to get this episode <laughs> together, so I apologize for the yawning. The question of where he was before he died and what led to his death just could not be answered. Yep. So, yeah. How did he die? Who knows? Circumstances of, of his body being found were strange enough. Yes. I mean, how do you get a body on top of a coal heap without disturbing the coal heap? Disturbing the coal heap. Getting the body covered and leaving fingerprints. Sounds like something like that. The only way that could happen, in my opinion, is if he was lowered under the coal pile. Mm -hmm. From above. Right. Now, granted, you have hoppers that can pour coal, but... Well, 10 feet isn't that tall to, to... Isn't that high to hurl a body on top of? But he'd be covered in coal at that point, too. Exactly. And his body was not covered in coal. Exactly. So... I don't know. And why were his clothes messed up? Why was his hair cut the way it was? Where did he get the burns? Mm-hmm. Oh. The strange gel? Yep. Who can oh, say? Stretch, stretch, stretch. Oh. All I can say is it's a very strange story. It and, is. And it is. that's why I included it in this one. I mean, again, it wasn't a disappearance where the person ever came back, but it's a disappearance nonetheless. Exactly. With very strange circumstances. So I think that's going to do it for tonight. This has been probably our longest night recording for the shortest episode. (laughs) (laughs) But we hope you folks got some enjoyment out of it just the same. Um, I don't usually...
talk about next week's episode. More often than not, I don't even know what next week's episode is about until like the day before. We fly by the seat of our pants yes, here. Yes, we do. Right? Because sometimes life happens and things get changed. That's right. Often things get changed. Well, this is true. I mean, we've done 30 somewhat episodes this season so far. Yeah. Our new season will be starting up at the after the end of the month. Yep. Didn't and as many this year as we did last you know, we year. Did, yeah. We did almost one every... We did We did just about one every week last week, or last but year. Life has happened a yes. lot to all yes. of us recently. Yes, it has. So. And, and we hope people understand that we have not been as able to podcast as we were in the past. And walk through. But we'll get there. We'll we will get there. We will get there once again. Once, mm-hmm. all, once all the craziness is out of the way and, yep. and life goes back to what it was before, if it I'm ever does. Normal. Yeah. <laughs> then you'll see a lot more. You'll you'll yep. hear a lot more of us. Yes. Yep. I may be going back to doing my shorts, depending uh-huh. on if I can feel human again. Yep. We'll see. But as I was saying, I don't normally talk about next week's episode, <laughs> but I do want to kind of say that, without saying what it's about, who's coming back? Without saying what it's about. <laughs> <laughs> We got a we got a surprise guest visitor that's already been here before. And I want to say that next week's episode is going to be a bit of an experiment. It'll be interesting. It'll yes. be something that you're familiar with, but we're putting a twist on it. Yes. And that's about all I'm willing to say right now because mm-hmm. I don't want to jinx it. Because every time I talk about the following episode. Something happens and it doesn't come to pass. Yep. So I'm just going to leave it at that. Just a little enticement. Yep. Keep listening and thanks for your support. You might actually discover something that we have discovered. You know. Yep. And you'll be you'll be sharing it with us. We will. If nothing else, we will have fun experimenting. Uh huh. And you might enjoy the experiment too. That almost sounds dirty. <laughs> Almost, but we are running a ch- uh, child-friendly, family-friendly yes, show. Yes, so. uh, keeping that in mind, it won't be dirty. <laughs> it won't be. And uh, you got something coming up this weekend too, don't you? Yes, in theory, I'm hoping I'll be able to to record with a past guest here mm-hmm. for my um, Why in the Podcast and hopefully get something going. That would be fun. It's been a bit... But life keeps happening, mm-hmm. and everything goes ah at once. Mm-hmm. Both of them, right? Yes. <laughs> Referring to the children she watches. <laughs> yes. Hey. Are they ever popular? Ah! Why did you hit me? Ah! Because you know they're siblings, and that's what siblings do. Because they're Irish twins. They are fifteen months apart, fourteen months apart. It's even better. 15 months apart. Yeah, it's like me and my brother. We knocked a few holes in walls in our day. Mm-hmm. There's holes in the door already. Yep. Three and four. And they're just young. Imagine when they become teenagers. <laughs> Granky will be retired at that point. Granky loves you. Go home to your mom. <laughs> Go your dad. I love you. Go away. Don't they still make malls? <laughs> no, they don't. You know what I mean, though. Yep. All right, well, folks. <laughs> well, <laughs> not what it once was. I still remember the Woolworths, the Balcom Wall downstairs, and then the pet store they put in afterwards, right before it closed. It was on K Street, or J Street, or L Street. Santa Clara Cupertino. 
for us, it was on K Street. K Street, because we had Woolworths with the, the dining counter, and you went downstairs to the pet store. Mm-hmm. Where I took care of my hamsters from, and then they closed. I miss Woolworths. It was good. It was a good store. I really enjoyed going they in. They didn't have my permission to close. But okay. And now you all have a rough idea how old we really are. Yes, older than dirt. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. But before we go, I do want to stress again, listen to this podcast episode. I want you to let me know if you hear anything on there. Oh, for today? That, that, yeah, that shouldn't be there. Because last time, we've oh, had something each time the last few weeks. Three weeks and so. I mean EVP is not one of us. Yeah, yeah you're going to be listening for <laughs> We should be there. You us. should not be. You, know, you, yeah. you should be yeah. hearing. And not one of our pets. Last week's one was a growl. Yep. Uh, what, what was the markage time? Five minutes, 48 seconds. Roughly. Yeah. No, right on that mark. Right on that, right on that mark, yep. Okay. So have a listen to last week's episode at the beginning again and tell us what you think. You know, you, you know how to contact us. We're, we're tired of beating that horse. <laughs> but again, if you do hear anything on this one, let us know. Let, let know. me know because I haven't listened yet and I have no idea. Until then, as we always say, stay spooky. And cue the gremlin. What in the Podcast is a part of the What in the Podcast Network and is available on Anchor, Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, and other great podcast formats. You can find us on Facebook at the What in the Podcast Facebook group. If you have a great story idea or have a personal paranormal event that you want to share with us, email us at whatinthepodcast at gmail.com with your story, or you can leave us a voice message by clicking the link in the episode description. If you like what you're hearing, please don't forget to leave us a review and rate us five stars. It doesn't seem like much, but it helps us more than you can imagine. What in the Podcast is also made possible thanks to our sponsors and listeners like you. Thanks for listening.